So that's why we're studying the uh, the twelve links, because that'll describe to you how how we got here and why we're here. Why why are we here? What's the biggest thing? Ignorance. Ignorance. So that's the real enemy, not human beings. Yeah. That's what we have to get rid of is our ignorance. So we're going to start, yeah, with taking refuge to the three jewels and imagining all the bears around us, all the bugs around us. Yeah, all the bugs, but in human form. Yeah, unless you want to be surrounded by bugs. You know, like on summer days, mosquitoes here and hornets there and flies. Yeah, they're sentient beings. We have compassion for them. So it's easy to see how reactive we are. Somebody does something we don't like, even though they're not trying to bother us. Like a bug buzzing around. And we get upset. But we can also see that when we change our behavior, and try to be sensitive to others' needs, you can see how other sentient beings appreciate what we do. So... All the time, there's moments, there's uh, opportunities to either be obnoxious. Even sometimes we don't intend to be uh, and disturb others. And there's also every moment an opportunity to refrain out of care and consideration and affection for others. So we all learned this even before going to kindergarten. But it's not always so easy to practice it. Our mind gets uncontrolled very easily. So that's why generating bodhicitta is important. As Shantideva says in the first chapter of his text, it's really the elixir that 
transforms our negative actions. Our tra- more the negative actions can't be transformed, but the mind that has afflictions that can drop the afflictions and adopt virtuous attitudes. And the best virtuous attitude, of course, is bodhicitta. So let's cultivate that now. So when we live a life that's tangled up in the 12 links, bodhicitta and the wisdom realizing emptiness are the two things that are going to help us get out of that and become Buddhas and be able to really benefit other living beings. Yeah, so we have to remember those two as much as we can instead of remembering uh, the things people did that we don't like. Okay, so um, we have another chart, okay, that Stephen made showing the, because uh, last week we talked about the, the poly uh, version of the uh, 12 links. This shows the, the poly presentation. So it's in three lives. Life B is the present life. Life A is the past life. And life C is the future life. And so um, in the so this is um, ignorance informative action. Um, connecting to so past causes connect with present results. So this is going from formative action to consciousness. Um, there's um, eight through ten here. So that's um, going from craving, clinging, renewed existence. So these are the five past causes in life A. And then going into life B, the present life. So... Um, Three through seven are the five present results. And then there's um, the five present causes um, in ignorance, formative action, craving, clinging, and renewed existence. And then the second connection point, um, and these are described on um, 202, is present results connecting with present causes. So that happens between feeling and craving. So that's here. And then moving on, going into the uh, future life, there's the connection between present causes and future results. And that's happening between renewed existence and um, birth here. Or um, the other way to talk about it is... um, renewed existence to consciousness. So the five future results are really these three through seven, consciousness through feeling, 
but they're an expanded way of talking about birth, um, aging, and death. No, no, they're a summarized way. The expanded way is you have all five. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so the so these are explicit in the presentation. Is that right? And the eleven through twelve are implicit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So which are the um, the projecting causes and projecting results, and which are the uh, uh, actualizing causes and actualizing results? Yeah. I think the past causes and present results are the are the projecting and projected, and the present causes and the future results are the actualizing and actualized. Yeah, the past causes of ignorance, formative action, and then the craving, clinging, and mm-hmm. renewed existence is the projecting yeah. effect. Effects. If we take it back to the explicit, the first explicit yeah. way in the Sanskrit tradition, yeah. then how is it? I don't think my answer changes. Otherwise, I'm confused about what you're asking. Yeah. I think the the projecting causes are the five past causes um from no if if we go back to the other model mm-hmm. the explicit presentation mm-hmm. okay then your um past co- your projecting causes and projecting results are going to be on the left side and the actualizing causes and actualized results are going to be on the right side of the diagram. Yes, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm meaning to say. Maybe I'm not saying it, but that's what's (laughs) in my mind. Okay. On on the left-hand side, the five past causes, one to two and then eight to ten, they are the projecting... Oh. One... Okay. One, one, and two are the projecting causes, mm-hmm. and the projected results are three and oh, seven. Oh yes, I see my mistake. Yes, yeah, and then the actualizing is the eight to ten. The eight to ten in the blue, mm-hmm. and the actualized results are the eleven to twelve in the oh. blue. And the eight to ten in the red is just not part of um, the equation. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. that was my mistake. Yes. Yeah, because there's different ways of presenting things. Okay. Yes. Okay. Now, in this example, how many uh, sets of twelve links are involved? Two. Yeah. Two. Everybody see how it's two? Okay. So that's three lives, but two sets. Yeah. Sometimes it can be three lives and one set, or two lives and one set. Okay. There's different ways of seeing it. Okay. So I'm not sure if my confusion is coming from still thinking too much about the Sanskrit model and those presentations, but so in this diagram, one and two Mm -hmm. is occurring in the same life as eight through ten of the same set, and that's that's a special case, right? Yeah. That that's no, not that, that can happen. happen. You know, mm-hmm. um, 
Yeah, I mean, you can create some karma this life, one and two, and at the end of this life, when you're dying, in the same set of 12 links, you have eight, nine, and 10. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So I guess in this, when we, when we did the implicit presentation, that was kind of a special case of it, right? To actually have that occur in the same life? No, it's not special. It can happen. I don't know what the percentage is of it, of the implicit happening over two lives or over three lives, but it's presented in both ways. And I don't know, you know, uh, I don't think anybody's done a, a statistical analysis of works. I, <laughs> I, I guess I'm I'm just thinking of it in terms of is it is it that we're only when we look at the twenty modes. I guess I'm just confused in terms of are we saying we're definitely interested in the one and two that's creating life B, and in this case, we're just putting it in life A? Is is that what we're doing? There, I guess when I say a special case, there is not a, it is not definite that links one and two occur in the same life as eight to 10. Right. So when we present it this way, I'm just trying to understand if we're taking one, one case... Or if it's yeah, that this okay. is this is one case okay. of it happening. If you're presenting it with the Sanskrit math model, then that's why there's two cases: one in which it happens over two lives, one presentation in which it happens over three lives. Okay, and so both ways are possible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that maybe don't look at this diagram when you're thinking of the sans- Sanskrit way. That might be part of part of the confusion. Okay, so we were uh, towards the bottom of page two or three. Okay, so um, we just got done talking about. Uh, the Sanskrit model, you know, and how it works. And the, the whole point of the, the 12 links is to show us what our situation is and to make us very concerned about it so that instead of just saying, I don't know, you know, just enjoy this life and, you know, be just not even know about this, let alone think about it, that we know about it and we go, oh, this is my situation. And if I look at my behavior, then what kind of rebirth am I likely to have in the future? Okay. And when we look at our behavior during the day, you know, how many, how often are we um, having a virtuous motivation, you know, and doing the action completely, not stopping halfway, you know, not changing our motivation in the middle, and then dedicating at the end, 
you know, at the end of the day or whatever. How often do we do that versus how often do we just do things with any old motivation without questioning if it's virtuous or non-virtuous, in which case because, uh, you know, self-grasping and self-centered are so predominant in our minds that it's very easy that, you know, we just, you know, commit non-virtue, like water flowing downhill, and then without even realizing that we're connecting, creating non-virtue, in fact, sometimes rejoicing at it, we complete all four parts of the karmic action, rejoice at the end, and, you know, feel really good, proud of ourselves. You know, I told that person off. I put them in their place. Yeah. Or, oh, I'm so glad that person, you know, got fired. I'm so glad they got beat up and rejoicing in in somebody else's uh, misery. Yeah. And so it makes us look and do some, you know, analysis about, well, what am I doing and what um, what am I likely to be reborn as, you know? And is that something that I want? Or if I want something different, then I need to change my actions of body, speech, and mind starting now. Yeah, so that's that's the purpose of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So if we continue from the bottom of 203, seeing that this is our situation, a wise sense of danger arises, and we come to appreciate our precious human life and the opportunity it provides to counteract our situation in samsara. Okay? So in, in Buddhism, you know, uh, they don't. Sh- the Buddha doesn't shy away from pointing out dangerous situations to us. Okay, sometimes I've noticed they talk about it as fear. Okay, to to have fear, or uh, like in the the um, text about Tara protecting us from the eight dangers. Some sometimes it's translated as Tara protecting us from the eight fears. Okay. This is there's two meanings of fear. And this is people trip up on this, thinking that, you know, oh, we're supposed to be afraid of the lower realms, we're supposed to be afraid of this and that. And mostly when we think of fear, we think of freaked out fear, don't we? Like, oh, what's going to happen to me? I'm terrified. And going into a a state of mind, actually, where we can't think very clearly. Yeah? When we're afraid, we don't think very clearly. We just are, you know, like like when you hit your knee, you know, automatic reflex. Okay? So that's why, although the word is, in, in Tibetan is jig, which means fear. Yeah. I think it's better to, um, because there are two fears, okay? The freaked out fear, but also the fear that comes from the awareness of danger. And so because these two often get confused in people's minds, I think it's easier 
are more, it's clearer for people that we're talking about the danger of samsara, the eight dangers that's, that uh, Tara protects us from, okay? Because we hear the word fear and we, you know, we stop thinking very clearly and just go into terror and that's not at all a helpful mind. Okay. Whereas an awareness of danger, yeah, without freaking out can be very helpful. Okay. When, when you go down to the highway and you're merging on I-90, yeah, are you aware of danger? Yeah. Dangerous merging on the highway. Are, do, are you afraid? You know, if you've driven a lot, no, you're not afraid. Okay, so the awareness of danger can make us attentive and careful. Whereas, uh, you know, the, the freaked out fear, which is what we normally think of when we hear the word fear, makes us, uh, yeah, we kind of dissolve. <laughs> we, can't, we don't function very well. Okay. So uh, we are grateful that the Buddha appeared in the world and taught the Dharma, uh, which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. That's a quote from the sutras, and it's and it's very true. You know, when you're starting to practice, the Dharma is good and helps you. In your middle, it it's good. At the end, it's good. Okay, so uh, the the Dharma itself. No problem. The way we practice the Dharma, there's bumps. Okay? So some people, when uh, they have certain expectations in their practice and things don't happen the way they expect, then they uh, think something's wrong with the Dharma. Okay? Especially... If you've been reading the sutras that say, you know, chant this mantra three times and then you are forever protected from something and then that thing happens the next day and then you think, well, the, you know, the whole dharma is false because it said this and that's not true. Okay, so I asked His Holiness about how to understand those things. <laughs> he said, it's just propaganda. <laughs> you know, the, he said, the Buddha's trying to encourage people and show them the advantage of something. So he says it in that kind of extreme language to get them interested in it. Okay. But it's not something to be taken literally. Because if it were, you know, certain results would have happened already. <laughs> okay, seeing the disadvantages of samsara, we take refuge in the three jewels and choose to go forth into a life of dharma. Abandoning the ten non-virtues and practicing the ten virtues, we cultivate mindfulness and introspective awareness with respect to sense objects. Why sense objects? Yeah. We live in the desire realm, and sense objects are the things that we are most 
concerned with, most enchanted by. Okay, so our mindfulness and our introspective awareness needs to go there. In terms of, you know, when we're, we're moving, how are we relating to the sense objects around us? When we're speaking, how are we relating to them? When we're thinking, how are we relating to them? Yeah. And so much of our day, so much of our lives is just around sense objects. Okay. You might say, well, no, it's not always. I'm not always seeing and hearing things. So often I'm thinking about stuff. But what are the things you're thinking about? They usually have to do with sense objects. How can I get them? How can I interfere with them, uh, you know, disturbing me? So our thoughts revolve around sense objects a lot too. And here are sense objects refer to the qualities of other people too. Yeah. In fact, you know, we we can be totally overpowered by the the sense, you know, seeing the sight of somebody who's really attractive or who's really unattractive, the the voice whether they're saying sweet things or not sweet things, their smell. We don't taste them very often, thank goodness. Um, the, you know, the tangible things if they touch us. So these things influence us a lot. And our body goes round and round, 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 because we all want somebody who has all those qualities really good, and we want them to think we are special. Hmm? Okay. Now, whenever our cognitive faculties contact their objects, we pause. Okay? While the arising of feeling is a natural result of previous conditions, we now see that a weakness in the process exists between feeling and craving. Okay? So you see... Somebody, let's say, who's very attractive to you, usually instantly attachment arises. Now, when we're aware of the danger, we see the feeling. In the feeling, there's the attraction that we see, the feeling of pleasure. And instead of immediately going to craving and clinging, yeah, there's interference saying, danger, danger, yeah, attachment can make a mess of your life, don't buy this, okay. Or similarly, if we see something we don't like, yeah, or hear something we don't like, then we usually go into anger, uh, ad- you know, um, aversion, wanting to strike back. And again, instead of, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. We have the sense thing of the, let's say the sound. You're you're in Ukraine and you hear the siren go off. Okay. Then you have the feeling of unpleasant. Yeah, unpleasant feeling. I don't like it. I don't want it. That easily goes into craving to be free of that object. Okay. But you're sitting there 
And how are you going to be free of that siren? You already have earplugs in, and it's coming in anyway. Yeah. So if you're not careful and you just start craving for that sound to cease, you know, you're going to get angry and upset and disturbed. If you see that there's a break between the unpleasant feeling and the potential to crave it go away, and instead of going to that craving, you just say, oh, it's just a sound. Yeah, it's impermanent. It's changing moment by moment. It's going to cease. It won't last forever. Yeah. Then you create a break between feeling and craving. And that's also where you can stop the creation of karma. Okay. In that, in those two examples, creating negative karma because you've, you've put the pause. You've, yeah. Okay. So in, in our lives, you know, there's so many opportunities we have if we're aware of what we're feeling to stop the chain of event, events and not go into craving, I want it, I've got to have it, how can I get it, they won't give it to me, or, oh, I can't stand this, get this away from me, it's horrible. And instead of going to that and creating more karma, you just stop it. Okay? So that can be very beneficial to do. Our problem is remembering to do it. We hear about it, but as soon as something happens, the mind starts judging. I like, I don't like, this pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, I like, I don't like, I want more of it, I want to get away from it. Yeah. Okay. While the rising of feeling is a natural result of previous conditions, We now see that a weakness in the process exists between feeling and craving. We have a choice regarding our response to pleasurable, painful, and neutral feelings. Instead of immediately letting the mind jump into craving, we remain mindful and equanimous. Okay. Some practitioners who have attained serenity may use their concentration to temporarily suppress craving for a sense objects. Yeah. So uh, you, those of you who were here when Geshe, uh, Yeshi was getting to that part in Gomparapsal and Illumination of the Thought, uh, we saw how when you have serenity, gross levels of affliction can be suppressed, but the serenity doesn't cut them completely because the serenity, uh, you know, it's a state of concentration. So you're concentrating on something else, and to concentrate on that object, you have to uh, temporarily suppress the afflictions. Okay, but it doesn't cut them. However, samadhi is not the final solution to samsara, and subtle attachment to the blissful 
or equanimous feelings experienced in deep concentration may still exist. Okay, so you're going to have attachment. Yeah, it's the attachment of the upper realm, so it isn't negative, but it still keeps you bound to samsara. Seeing this, yeah, um, these practitioners cultivate insight because it's insight into the ultimate nature that is able to cut the attachment and aversion. Okay, as the power of their unified serenity and insight increases, they employ wisdom to penetrate nirvana and gradually eradicate defilements. Okay, so this is, you know, I've just had uh, um, so many people coming recently saying, you know, oh, I want to generate serenity, and or I want to teach serenity, or, yeah. And serenity isn't even a Buddhist practice, a solely Buddhist practice. It's a practice Buddhists do, but Hindus do it, Christians do it, anybody can do it. You don't, even people who are not religious. So serenity is a technique in a Buddhist perspective, to make your other your other meditations very strong and really bring them home in your heart. So if you are meditating on bodhicitta and you have serenity, your mind can stay on bodhicitta and really integrate it uh, in your mind. Yeah. If you just have serenity, yeah, uh, the usual way of creating it, and this we'll get into in volume four, is you meditate on the benefits of the next highest stage of dhyana and the faults of the stage of, you know, whatever level of concentration you have now. So you can see meditating on the benefits of a higher stage of concentration and the faults of of your present state of concentration, that's not going to get you out of samsara. Okay. So, you know, you can bump up your level of concentration, but then what are you going to use it for? What kind of quality or realization do you want to use your samadhi for so that uh, it will really affect the afflictions uh, in the long term? and not just temporarily uh, suppress them, okay? So, for example, they're saying that Milarepa, okay, that Tibet's uh, very famous yogi, yeah, when he was younger, before he became the great meditator, he had very strong samadhi, and he used it to kill people. Yeah, surprising. So you can see, you can you can have some strong samadhi and some kind of negative motivation and create a ton of negative karma, yeah. Which is why when he finally met his teacher um, Marpa, you know that's why he was building all these buildings and tearing them down and doing that because he had this kind of neg- negative karma to um, to purify. Yeah. So it's important to to know where in the path uh serenity comes. Yeah. Cuz some people 
uh, you know, they come to the Dharma and say, I want to, we had one person come earlier this year, I want to learn serenity. And we, and instead he was cutting apples. Yeah. And he wasn't very, he was cutting apples with you and he wasn't very happy about it. Yeah. And so he left after a few days to go to another place in the hopes of getting, you know, and when I talked to him about it, you know, he said, I want the bliss. I want the bliss. That's why I'm going. I'm, I'm going for the bliss. But you get bliss. But, you know, if even if you get born in the upper realms, if, if you haven't cut the root of samsara, if you haven't da- damaged your ignorance, then, you know, you're up there for a few lifetimes and then you're, you know, back down again. Okay? So we should... You know, we try and improve our concentration, of course, but, um, you know, we really need to have the Buddhist worldview so that we know how to use the concentration properly. Okay. So that was uh, practitioners who have attained serenity. Now... Other practitioners have a strong aptitude for wisdom and rely on the power of reflection and examination to understand the unsatisfactory nature of sensual pleasures. Okay, so this is something we should think about. What's the unsatisfactory nature of sensual pleasures? Okay, you know, you have a, you imagine, your trip to Hawaii, yeah, that's going to be perfect. Perfect weather, perfect water, perfect everything. Yeah, and is it like that? <laughs> and at the end, what happens? You know, you laid on the sand and you got maybe tan, maybe sunburn. Then, <laughs> yeah, then, 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 yeah. You still have to fly back and go to your job and, you know, live your life. Okay, so good to understand the unsatisfactory nature of sensual pleasures. It really stops the mind's craving, you know. Yeah, because who wants to go towards something that's unsatisfactory? Through this, they draw their minds back from entanglement with sense objects. And with understanding, they temporarily stop their minds from reacting to feelings with craving. Okay? On their own, reflection and examination do not go deep enough to uproot samsara, but they calm the mind, allowing for the cultivation of serenity. Yeah? So these practitioners, like the previous ones, then unify serenity with insight and use wisdom to realize nirvana and overcome all defilements. Okay, so in the Pali system, uh, there's various, people always want to know, you know, between shamatha and vipassana, serenity and insight, 
what do you do first? So in the poly system, yeah, they say some people develop serenity first, then they go to insight. Other people uh, say it's also popular, to, uh, pos possible to develop uh, insight first and then go to samadhi, like these two last paragraphs. Okay, but you'll notice in Kamala Shila's text, yeah, he said very clearly serenity is to be developed before uh, insight. Does that mean that you never meditate on insight until you get full-blown uh, serenity? No, it doesn't mean that. Yeah, we have to contemplate all the different meditations in the Lam Rim. But in terms of actualizing them, realizing them, that it's serenity first, then insight. But that's the Sanskrit tradition. So, different ideas. Imagine that. Okay, the next section is who revolves in cyclic existence. And this is a really beautiful section. When outlining the 12 links in the Rice Seedling Sutra, the Buddha said, from ignorance arises formative action, and from birth arises aging or death. Okay. Let's just stop here and remember, okay, the 12 links is talking about dependent arising. So often we ask, why does something happen like this? Okay, why am I born? Why does a strong karma ripen in this life instead of next life? Why, uh, you know, Am I still sick even though I've taken medicine? I mean, so many things. Whenever we're asking why or how, the answer is always dependent arising. In our question, we want to know the specific dependent arising. Okay? But some of these... I mean, any when you really think about dependent arising, it is incredibly complex. Yeah. So you could say, why did I get a cold? Well, you were sitting next to somebody who had a cold, and they sneezed, and you got it. Okay. Is that the only reason why you got a cold? Because the another person sitting on, on the other side of that person, didn't get a cold. So what other factors are involved? It's not just one cause. Yeah. Why did that virus affect you, but it didn't affect them? Well, there could be any number of physical reasons. Your, your, uh, their immunity system was stronger. Uh, than yours, they or they had that same virus before, so they weren't susceptible to it. You didn't. You got it. Or, um, you know, I mean, there could be many, many different physical things. All the viruses, when they sneezed, went in your direction because the wind was blowing that way and they didn't go the other way. And there might be a karmic component. 
So there's all sorts of other conditions. Remember, things happen not just because of one cause. There's always multiple conditions. And we don't know the causes, all the causes, and we don't know all the conditions. But the answer is always dependent, arising, you know. So, and and so some things, uh, you know, we might be able to say, oh, you caught a virus. That satisfies the person. But then that person may say, but why? Why does that a virus give me a cold? You know, and they want uh, an explanation about how the virus affects the cells in the body. Okay, anybody here qualified to give that explanation? Can you describe how viruses? Yeah, they 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 do something to cells and take over the DNA of the cells, something like that. But how do they break through the exact the you know, the, the skin of the shell, you know, how did they get in there? How do they know which, uh, you know, chromosome to attack? How do they bind? You know, you get into that and you can't describe. I mean, it's so complex that unless you're, you know, a, an incredible biologist who knows you know, who just sits and looks at cells, cold cells all day, you know, you're not going to be able to explain the whole thing. So it's similarly when people ask questions about karma, you know, karma is a system of causes and conditions. Causes, causes and conditions bring results. Yeah. So why does this happen? Why does this ripen before that ripens? Dependent arising, causes and conditions, exactly what they are, become a Buddha. Okay? Or get, get at least some, some deep samadhi so that you can see this with samadhi. Okay. So the, the Buddha expressed the interconnection of the 12 links in this way. You know, from ignorance arises formative action, from birth arising ages and arises aging and death. So he expressed the interconnection of the 12 links in this way to emphasize that there is no inherently existent person who experiences the 12 links. Okay. Now we always think that there is an inherently existent person who is going through life. So there's the person who has ignorance, who creates karma, you know, who possesses the mind stream that the karma is set on, yeah, who who then takes rebirth into the other body with a name and form, and then the, you know, has the six uh, sense sources and contact and so on and so on. We think that there's this inherently existent person. Yeah. And uh, actually, it was overcoming that idea that leads us to liberation 
And that is the what, the reason the, the Buddha described the 12 links. Okay. Because there is no inherently existent person that experiences the 12 links. Yeah. There is no inherently existent person. Then we go, what? What? No, I'm here. I experience the 12 things. I have feelings. I crave. I, 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 I. But if you look at all the different factors and how one factor, one link leads to the next one, yeah, if you really go deep in looking at them, there is no inherently existent or substantially existent person who experiences that. Okay? The links occur naturally as part of a causal process. It, they don't require some kind of substantial person to go through that process. So the Rice Seedling Sutra says, Nothing whatsoever from this world, nothing whatsoever goes from this world to the beyond. But wait a minute. When somebody dies, we pray for their next rebirth. So they go on to the next life. Don't we? Don't we say, you know, I'm praying for so-and-so's good rebirth. You know, or it's at past 49 days, they must be reborn. Yeah. And we think that it's the same person who we knew in this life. Yeah. And that's the way we express it in words, too. And that's the way in our hearts we feel. Yeah. That person isn't really gone. Yeah. They appear in my dreams. They affect my dreams. They give me messages in my dreams. They leave clues around so that I can understand things. They're my guardian angel. And when I die and go to heaven, they are there waiting for me, looking exactly the same way as they looked in this life. Yeah, this is how people think, isn't it? And how religions kind of set it all out. And Buddha says, "Mm -mm, that's not it. Because nothing whatsoever goes from this world to the next. You can burn all the paper money you want. It doesn't get to your deceased loved one. It just creates a lot of carbon dioxide in the air and ashes for you to clean up. Okay? It doesn't go to the next world. But, it, you know, so much of religion is revolved around, revolves around this idea of, you know, helping people think that their inherently existent loved one is still there in some form. 
They went from this to that. They still exist. Huh? But they died. Who's the person that you think exists in the next life? Who's that person? Do they have the same body? But just now their body is kind of like translucent or transparent. You know, in heaven you, you know, have a translucent. You lose your kidneys and digestion and you just have a see-through body. Something like that. Is, is the body the person? Yeah. Is the body the person? Is the mind, do they have the same mind? Yeah. If your dear one gets reborn as one of our cats, do they have the same mind? Do they have the same mind? When that bug is flying around you, buzzing, are they thinking, oh, there's my my mother, father, husband, wife from the previous life. I love them so much that that's why I'm buzzing around them. Now, some people would take that as a sign that, yes, your loved one is really there. Okay. What do you think? Is your loved one their mind? Is a bug's mind the same as a human being's mind? Yeah. Is that bug your mother? Yeah. They don't look like her. They don't act like her. What about them as your mother? We think, no, there's got to be something permanent that never goes out of existence, that goes from one life to another. There has to be, because without it, how can the karma go from one life to the next? Yeah. If you don't have something that that, that those karmic seeds stick to, yeah, then how are those karmic seeds going to get to the next life so they can ripen? Yeah, they need a foundation consciousness. Yeah, they need a mental consciousness. They're stuck on the mental consciousness. They need a soul. Yeah, there's got to be something permanent that never changes that Karma is laid on that goes exactly in the same way into the next life. Because otherwise you wouldn't experience the results in your next life of the karma you created in this life. That's the way we think, isn't it? Yeah? And you even say, well, at the beginning of this teaching, you said that studying the 12 links makes us very aware of the actions we create and the kind of rebirth we're going to take. So you use the word I or we indicating a person. Yeah, I and we are are, are pronouns for persons. 
So there must be a person that goes from this life to next life. Yeah? Because we are concerned with our next, our next life, what we'll, we'll be reborn as. Yeah? If there was nothing that went from this life to next, then why should I be concerned? Yeah, because nothing goes. At the end of this life, boing, they turn out the lights. I go, nothing exists after that. My consciousness just ceases, period. Basta finito, it's over. That's the way we think. Yeah? Two choices. Either an inherently existent self or soul or person or nothing. Okay, that's what the Buddha called the two extremes. Okay, the two extremes. And we can go back and forth between them because we think there's this real I. And then you come to some Dharma teaching and you hear nothing whatsoever goes from this world to the beyond. You start to think and you say, yeah, okay, yeah, nothing goes from this world to beyond. Oh, that means I don't go from this world to beyond to the beyond. That means at death I don't exist. Freak out. Okay. And they're gonna look at me and say, Look, you taught us. You say we we become concerned with our next rebirth. So you believe that we go from this life to next. You even said it. Okay, language and words and concepts are approximations. Yeah, they are used for the purpose, for a convenient purpose to be able to communicate with each other. But they're very messy, you know, and here we are in a Buddhist system where everything has a very specific definition and you learn to debate things and you have to see what the specific definition is. But one uh, yiksha defines it this way and another one defines it that way. So which one is right? Mine, let's debate, my definition is right, your definition is wrong. Okay? Or you say, when did something happen? Okay? When did, uh, what what bloomed recently? Yeah, the daffies bloomed. Okay. So when... Did the first daffodil bloom? Okay. Now you might say, oh, it bloomed on Monday. Uh, uh, No, I said when? Uh, Monday morning, afternoon, evening, middle of the night? Okay, Monday afternoon. Now when in the afternoon? About 2 o'clock. What do you mean about 2 o'clock? When did it go from being a bud to a daffodil? 
because a bud and a daffodil are two different things. So what was the exact moment when it went from a bud to a daffodil? Can you find that moment? It was at 2.01 and 58.9762543211 seconds. Okay, so you can get to that actual point where it went from being a bud to a daffodil. Can you see that point? What is it that changed in that much shorter moment of time that made it go from a bud to a daffodil? Can you pinpoint the time? When exactly it was a bud and when exactly it became a flower? You can't, you know. And even if you try, everybody's going to have a different opinion. Some people are going to say, it became a flower when the first petals started to open. Somebody else could say, no, it only became a flower when most of the petals were open. And somebody else said, no, it only became a flower when all the petals were open. But then how far Open does each petal need to be to be considered open? Is it just moved a little bit or has it moved a lot? How much? You know, you get into this. Yeah. And when did the flower start? And when did the bud end? And what makes that a bud and this a flower? Can you find a flower anywhere? Can you find a bud anywhere? You can't. Yeah. But we talk about flowers and flower buds and flower seeds all the time, don't we? And we define them differently, but they're kind of an approximation. But very often people will quarrel over the definition, the exact specific definition of something. Yeah. But you can't pinpoint anything. You can say in general, there was a cause and there was an effect. But if the cause had its own inherent nature, it would be permanent. It couldn't change, which means that it could never bring an effect. So if you were some permanent person with a permanent personality and permanent personality traits, then you could never change. Yeah. And no causes, no conditions, nothing could influence you to make you change. Because when you are inherently existent, 
You have your own nature. You don't depend on any causes or conditions or anything else. You're independent. So you can't change and become something else. So that would mean we could never become Buddhists. Then people say, no, but I'm already Buddha. Mm, So then you're an ignorant Buddha. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. mm. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, you can see when we use language, we're dealing with approximations. When we use concepts, it's with approximations. Yeah? So you don't know whether a wave is a particle or a... No. You don't know whether an electron is a particle or a wave. Did I get it right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Where I'm going next is, you know... You look at it this way, it's a particle. You look at it that way, it's a wave. No, it's got to be one thing, either or. Maybe it's a third thing. Yeah, it could be a third thing. Or maybe it just changes how it looks, depending on its mood. Yeah. So we, we argue for a long time and we do massive experiments and, you know, spend incredible amounts of money to figure out what, what name to attach to that. <laughs> yeah? And that's what we do with everything. You know, every field is looking at you know, how do we conceive something? How do we label it? But all of that stuff is only convenient approximations. You know, when you have a card of law, yeah, you know, is somebody guilty? Is somebody innocent? What are people arguing about? They did some action. Everybody knows you know, I mean, people know what happened, let's say, on January 6th. People know. Yeah. So does that make somebody innocent? Does that make them guilty? Well, what does innocent mean? And what does guilty mean? Can they be both innocent and guilty? Yeah. And then you have court cases, you know, where people try and figure out what label to give to that action. Okay? So nothing whatsoever goes from this world to the beyond. Yeah? Words and language operate on the conventional level. Yeah? They they cannot, and we have to use words and concepts to understand the ultimate nature. But they don't, function in when somebody is directly perceiving emptiness words and concepts are out the window okay they just don't function there because they're just you know approximations for things they're not the 
some kind of inborn, they don't indicate some kind of inborn nature of something. Okay, nothing whatsoever goes from this world to the beyond. Nevertheless, from causes and conditions, the effect of karma is manifested. It is just as in a clean mirror, one sees the image of a face, but the the image or the face does not transfer into the mirror. Yeah, you look in a mirror. Did your face go in the mirror? Oh, one person said no. Good. Um, Now, your face didn't go into the mirror, but it sure looks like your face. Yeah? And And you can use that face in the mirror, you know, to do something with your pimples or pluck your, I don't know, your eyebrows or your beard or, you know, whatever you do. Yeah. So it functions. But did the, did the face go into the mirror? No. Face is still a face. It's a reflection. It's not a real face. Okay. But the, the image of the face does not transfer into the mirror. Because the causes and conditions are complete, a face appears. Yeah. If you're standing in front of a mirror, but the room is dark, you have the principal cause, there's no face in the mirror. Okay. You stand in front of the, the mirror in a room that's light, but the mirror is filthy, you still don't have a reflection. So you can see, you see, you can have a principal cause, but if one cooperative condition is missing, you're not going to get the same result. Okay. But when the causes and conditions are complete, a face appears. Accordingly, there is not anyone who transfers from this lifetime at death. Oh, I'm sorry, who transfers from this lifetime at death. So there's no soul or somehow amorphous shape in here that when you die, rises up out of your head, you know, like in the movies, and then goes over and lands somewhere else. Okay. No one, there is not... Accordingly, there is not anyone who transfers from this life at death. No one is born in another lifetime as well. But we say the baby was born. What do you mean no one was born? The baby was born. Does that seem contradictory to you? Did the baby exist in the previous life and come from the previous life to this life? So you died as a baby. (laughs) You you had aging and death and wound up as a baby at the end of your life and then transferred to the next life. 
No, that's not what happened. Yeah. Were you an old person that transferred into a baby's body? Okay. No one is born in another lifetime as well. Okay. Conventionally, a baby is born. On the ultimate level, no one is born. Because on the ultimate level, when you search, yeah, this is called ultimate analysis, when you search for exactly who it was that was reborn, you cannot isolate some truly existent person that was, you know, there, that was born from this life to next life. You, you can't even do that. Yeah. From one moment to the next moment, or from childhood to you as an adult, yeah, it feels like, oh, I, I grew up. I grew up. I remain the same. And the body changed and the mind changed. Yeah, right? But I'm the same because I grew up. I just went from a small body to a big body, body from somebody who didn't know much to somebody, you know, who's a big know-it-all. And, you know, but I did, I did that. So I grew up. Who? Who? Who's that person that grew up? Who's the person who was the same when you were a baby and is the same today? Yeah? You can't point to anything. And every single thing about us was different in babyhood than in adulthood. Yeah? Everything. You know, can you pinpoint any? aspect of your conventional self that, you know, eats and drinks and lives that is the same now as it was when you were a baby. Yeah. So there's no one, even from that point of view, who grows up. Nobody grows up. But nobody remains a baby either. Okay, no one is born in another lifetime as well. Because the causes and conditions are complete, the effect of karma is actualized. Yeah? So you have to have the causes and the conditions, and then the result comes. But when the result comes, there is nothing that goes from the cause into the result. Okay. So they use another, uh, we'll get to this other analogy later, but I'll tell it to you now because it's, it's that, well, the, the face in the mirror is a good analogy, you know, because it sure looks like you. <laughs> yeah. But there's no, nothing that goes from here into there. Yeah. Um, and, they, and the other analogy is like a, uh, a stamp. When you, not a stamp with an ink pad, okay? Because there the ink, you know, we transfer the ink. But 
a stamp with wax. You know, when they make wax imprint and you have a stamp. Yeah. You have the design on the stamp. You press the stamp into the, into the wax. You have the same design in the wax. Did the design go from the stamp into the wax? Did anything go from, you know, that stamp into the wax? Think about it. Think about it. What Did anything go? Yeah. There was this as a cause. That, the seal, the design in the seal as the result. But nothing went from here to there. Okay. So in the same way, yeah, we go from one life to the next. But... There's no inherently existent fixed person that goes. But conventionally, we say, so-and-so was reborn, or I will be reborn. But you cannot isolate exactly what the referent of that word I or person is. Okay, so we'll stop there. Does it make you feel a little bit like uh, uh, uncomfortable? Yeah, like wait a minute. Uh, I'm I'm here. I go to the next life. Don't tell me I don't go to the next life. Yeah, I exist. And if and if I don't go to the next life then it means I become totally non-existent and everything stops. Yeah. But how is that going to happen too? Because one moment of something, you know, everything brings a result. So that, what kind of result? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if you could say that there's some kind of force that goes from this the stamp to the seal, like the inertia of the stamp. Because you got to press it, you got to force it down. Mm-hmm. So is there a force, there's some energy, like... Yeah. yeah. Is that force a cause? Okay. If it's a cause, then it can't be the thing that goes. You need the force to produce the stamp. But the force isn't the design in the, in the wax. It's a cause of the design. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then the baby being born. Uh-huh. I remember in Jeffrey's class, he was talking about... Um, you know, no inherent production is because if you can't say the baby was born because that means the baby existed before it was born. Yeah. So it's like, um, you know, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. So then some people say, well, yeah, the baby existed before it was born. 
Yeah, some schools say that. It existed in, in a subtle manner, in an unmanifest manner. Yeah, and then just the right thing made it crystallize and you saw it. But it was there all along. Yeah. The Buddhists have some good replies to that. Like, okay, if the result is there in the cause, then when you eat ice cream, what are you really eating? Hmm? What's the result of ice cream? Yeah, when you eat ice cream, are you eating poop? (laughs) Yeah, if you say the result existed in the cause, then you have to say that. (laughs) 